Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our June 9th, 2011 edition of the show. 4.07 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rg larson today we're going to be doing something we only do when there is a certain alignment of stars or energies or something i'm not sure what it is it just happens and i know it's time we put forth certain combinations of music that somehow create a summoning to a cabal of transcendental agents whereby they will call in with reports from strange realms We may get some answers, or at least some good questions or musings about time travel, synchronicity, dreams, spooky or mystical experiences, or death. So, expand and enjoy. KUCI, you're on the air. Time, what have you done to me? I'm here talking to my past self. Directly nine years, two months, and four days in retrospect to be punctually positive. Conveying a message of sublime uncertainty via telephonic connections, bridging the irreverent fissures in space itself. The missing ingredient seems to be the tenuous bonds of time leaching what informational hindsight I'm able to explain. No time to say much of anything, really. Life-altering events on a global scale are beyond the reach of a younger self. Due to adolescence and uncouth political themes that would have a field day with pronounced psychic forces. On the other hand, investment options foretelling future boons, thereby securing a financially stable present for my wallet, may be misconstrued and come across as too obtuse. Then again, spurning the names of former lovers who committed acts so reprehensible against the heart shouldn't be meddled with either. The pains of a well-lived life leave young men wiser to the guiles of old age. It seems nothing I say to a former era of myself can really dictate surefire betterments for the person I know to be me at this present juncture. But time itself never looks yesterday straight in the eye to explain what happened. Best left for the future to figure misdeeds and misnomers. The truest message I'd want to get to my prior self are too dangerous in every realm of ethics or logic. All the advice I've got to give comes from the experiences my very self has yet to live through entirely. If there was a single unobtrusive shred of light I could share, it would have to be the things don't get better. Worse, possibly, but never better. The earth, the economy, the lack of meaningful experiences as time shuffles on and on and on. Everything just gets different. And that difference is something we all live with or die with, depending on your level of self-confidence and stock options. This was and is Ryan reporting from the intersection of sacred and profane.
KUCI. You're on the air. Let us consider the story of country western singer Johnny Sands, who on January 29, 1976, after performing at a well-known Las Vegas hotel, experienced a hair-raising close encounter. As he saw a light coming down from the sky, Sands' car malfunctioned. The musician says the craft landed <clears throat> and two beings emerged from the object. One of the euphonauts proceeded to walk towards Sands until he stood right in front of him. <clears throat> According to Sands, the being looked to be about five foot eight. His face was really pale. He had no eyebrows, no eyelashes, no hair at all. To me, he looked like somebody frozen to death. He touched something on his belt, and right after he did, I got impressions in my mind. It was like listening to someone talking over the telephone from a great distance away. The being asked what I was doing in the desert. He placed his hands behind my back and brought them out in front of me. Seconds later, in his hands, he held a silver ball, the approximate size of a basketball. He held it out in front of him. He let the ball go, and it floated right there in front of us. <clears throat> he passed his hands over the object and made it start rotating in a circular motion. He explained something that tied in with our nuclear power uh, grid. He explained he put his hand over the top of the ball, and as he did so, there was an explosion just above its smooth surface, a flash, a minor explosion like a firecracker going off. Next, the ball started to act up a bit as if it were being stirred up by the explosion. He said that when we use nuclear devices, it causes our world to vibrate like this. He added that because of these tremors, the rotation of the earth is slowing down, and we are actually losing time, and thus we grow older much faster. Sands admits that the alien did not go into detail, nor did he explain any of the things he said. Eventually, the story leaked out, though, and was published in the Las Vegas Sun. In no time at all, Sands became a local celebrity, appearing on area talk shows. Because of his newly found status, Sands didn't think twice when he received a call from the manager of a TV crew re requesting an interview. Little did the entertainer know that he was soon to be confronted with an even bigger mystery, which involved men in black as well as hairy beasts. According to Sands, the men called and said they were doing a UFO television special and wanted me to go on location. I agreed to go with them and show them the spot where the encounter took place. We went out there in the daytime, and when we finished, they wanted to do a polygraph and voice analysis as part, as part of the segment. I su suggested we go down to the polygrapher's office to let the polygrapher read the results. <clears throat> At first, they thought it was a good idea, but then they changed their minds. They said they'd like to go out in the desert to read the results of the polygraph. It didn't make sense to go out in the desert at 10 p.m. to read the results, but I met them anyway. They said we were all going to load up and go out in one car. Before leaving, they had mixed drinks and offered me one. They gave me one, and we started driving. As we started going, the drinks started to make me feel woozy. Normally, I don't drink, so I quietly poured the rest out. We drove on past the location for no apparent reason. When we reached a new location six miles up the road, there were about 40 cars parked there waiting for us. They all faced in the same direction. We came to a stop so that their headlights were shining right on us. It was then I realized all these people knew in advance about our coming here. We hadn't advertised that we were going into the desert. A fat man with glasses came across the road and shook his fingers at the others, pointing at the car where I sat. He was saying that I knew too much. One of the guys said he only knows what they let him know. I tried to get out of the car to see what was going on. As I opened the door, two furry-type creatures like robot gorillas appeared. They looked to be about five feet tall. As I got out of the car, one of these furry things started running towards the door. It scared the hell out of me, so I shut the door right away, locked it, and rolled the window up. <clears throat> it came right up to the window and looked in. It talked with the fat man and then stood guard. And then I passed out. 
when I came to later, they were getting in the car. They were all getting in their cars. Actually, all the other cars were gone except for ours. It was three hours later. The production people looked at me and said, you have done good. We liked the filming you did. Later, I told my manager everything. He checked them out, but they had excuses for everything. I asked to see the film we had done. The producer said it was destroyed, however, because it supposedly didn't come out right. I asked him about the 40 cars. He said he didn't know anything about them. Investigating some more, I found out that they had just come into town three days before. They had made me sign a contract that I would not release any likeness of the alien I had seen until after television special. They said that they had paid for the artist's artist conception, mine, and did not, did not want it exposed. They had no office, just an answering service. Later, I found out that the FBI had a wiretap on their telephone. This is Andy reporting from the Den of Larval Angels. KUCI, you're on the air. In 2009, an Atomic Energy Commission official was supposedly told that the Roswell incident was an actual crash of technology that was not our own. The UFO researcher who uncovered this story did not bother to ask the official how he felt about it. Did the fact that one of his close friends in the military admit that alien races did in fact exist and it made it to Earth bother him in any way? A few years ago, a producer I know was working on a documentary about government knowledge of UFOs. He interviewed many former officials who said that, yes, UFOs were evidence of someone else's technology and that aliens existed in the way that most of us think. Um, in other words, there are humanoid entities from other planets who have come here. After a couple of months of this, he had a personal crisis in his belief structure because people whose backgrounds he checked out and seemingly, he seemed reasonably sane had told him that something he had previously thought was a myth was in fact true. One of the other producers had to talk him down for a couple of days before he calmed down. There was no real proof of anything he was told, and even if there was, what difference would it make? Even if aliens are here from time to time, people will still go to work, pay their mortgages, fall in and out of love, and basically go on with life. He was probably going through the same mental struggle as some of his interviewees had done. What is that dark journey? Why don't countless government employees with supposed knowledge of an ET presence go completely nuts and start sending letters to other elected officials raving on websites and standing on street corners clad only in sandwich boards with their here printed on them in black letters? Perhaps the reason for this is that they've been told that there's literally nothing they or anyone else can do about it. Perhaps the government knows a little more than the rest of us about this strange phenomenon known as UFOs. They have much more data, but what do they do with it? People have known for quite a while that there's very likely something non-human interacting with us occasionally. There have been attempts to explain this presence through the cultural lens of the time, but there's never been any way to control it or to predict when it would happen again. All we know is that it does. Of course, humans can get used to anything. Wars force us to deal with death as a shadow lurking just off stage. Those in war zones can adapt to near-constant bombing and shooting. We're quite adaptable to just about any situation. Homo sapiens has a great mental capacity for dealing with stressful living, even if it does shorten lives. Those who claim abduction by aliens perhaps perform a spe um, form a special group. There appears to be little proof, however, that the abduction phenomenon is actually connected to the UFO question as a whole. People have told stories about being spirited away by strange entities for eons. 
Why this should suddenly equal aliens from other planets is an open and debatable question. Most people don't have to deal with anything of a paranormal nature in their, in their daily lives. An occasional sensationalized report on, report on UFOs and their occupants doesn't really concern most of us. If the phenomenon decided, if it can do that, to make itself known to anyone or everyone, we, we would adapt to that too. For now, it's just not something that people have to think about very much. That goes for our government friends too. Personal encounter is usually a one-time event. Those with healthy psyches would integrate it into their worldview, mainly because it's not a daily concern. The aliens, if they exist, don't seem to care whether we believe in them or not. Perhaps they, have an, they don't have an equivalent for the word. Things are, and that's that. There's no timetable for disclosure, whatever that means, and no plans to reveal themselves, and no real concern for who sees them. Their existence likely appears as a cipher because of our perceptions, cultural conditioning, and beliefs, rather than any planned stealth on their part. Perhaps this is what those on the inside are hiding from the rest of us. Disclosure could be admitting to ignorance and impotence. Those with special knowledge may know that doing something or doing nothing will ultimately have the same effect. It's always easier to do nothing. And maybe neither us nor the aliens, which is in quotes, have any common ground except for some level of intelligence beyond animals. Perhaps our non-human friends are simply existing like birds or even insects. Any purpose maybe that we graft onto the situation may be something we have uh, done to make it easier to try and understand. How do we cope with something that's almost totally outside our frames of reference? There are, of course, many reports of UFOs interacting with the military, specifically stories of nuclear weapon malfunctions and shutdowns. Perhaps non-human intelligences are grafting our meaning onto their belief structure, if they have one. There's ample evidence that human interaction with UFOs is a highly reflexive phenomenon. In light of all these musings, perhaps we should accept things as they are, not worry too much about conclusions that fade away almost as quickly as they appear. As the late John Keel said, to hell with the answer, what is the question? This is Greg reporting from Radio Mysterioso. KUCI, you're on the air. A silence pervading the noise, and the darkness falls with every rising of the sun, a comforting unsettlement upon those who gain shadowed countenances and wide eyes. Stillness harmonizes with overexertion. Dormant waking ensues as rays of so-called enlightenment and contentment breach the horizon. The wise and few shield themselves from its artificial brilliance, that which silhouettes perceived happiness and burns laughter into the faces of its victims. Overexposure, every memory a neon white masquerade, Yet, beneath the Arctic surface, the telltale heart solidly beats its funereal dirge, a call to arms for its kin. The brave few assemble, a motley bunch of need, incubating cheer and high morale in murmurs of warm gloom, desperation causing dependence. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who hunger, thirst, those who suffer, for theirs is the kingdom of unknown gladness, the joy of unfalse freedom. This is Amanda reporting from the intersection of joy and melancholy.
KUCI, you're on the air. I was deflating 1950s-era gangsters with an invisible psychic force emanating from my fingertips until finally the bad guys lay flat on the ground like empty balloons. Thus I came to the sudden realization that I was dreaming. With this realization, I could feel my control, just as I'd become aware of lucidity, slipping away. I caught a glimpse of my hands and remembered the Castaneda method my friend Paul Rydine had once mentioned, the one where you look at your hands to preserve the state of lucid dreaming. Rydine said that when he tried this himself, he saw 10 to 20 fingers on each hand, then immediately awoke from the dream. When I looked at my hands in this manner, I saw six spooky fingers that glowed with an iridescent sheen. Things were getting progressively weirder with the air around me now resembling a Van Gogh painting as I then began to fade from this lucid state of dreaming awake. Upon awaking, a few scattered thoughts crossed my hazy mind. Was I in some way related to the race of creatures associated with the alien autopsy film? I chuckled inwardly at the premise, but took more seriously my following thoughts, which questioned the possibility of a psychic war taking place behind my closed eyelids within the realm of sleep. When I had gazed at my six-fingered hands, I felt the presence in my dream of another psychic force intervening, just as I had awakened to the possibility of lucid dreaming. The battle, it appears, is to keep us asleep in the dark, unaware of the possibility of controlling our own realities, whether asleep or awake. I attempted in the dream to see my hands as they are and was interrupted in this process by an intervening force which added an extra digit on either hand as an attempt to wrestle away my dream control. The actual battle in my dream was not with the deflated gangsters. They were just a convenient metaphor. The true battle exists with forces residing in the astral dream plane who tried to blow away my control with swirling Van Gogh winds that mesmerized my mind to the lucid possibilities of my own dream plane dominion. By what I gather from the dream journals of Jeffrey Lewis, he is likewise involved in a similar psychic battleground of the slumbering mind. His battle is one waged against the biblical gods of old who, Jeffrey Lewis contends, through the ages have maintained a stranglehold upon our collective dreams and visions, both asleep and awake, influencing history in the process. So, is this our great challenge as we plunge headfirst into the apocalyptic millennium? Is our only true means of salvation in surviving the rapture by destroying the gods of yore and reclaiming the power that is rightfully ours, by rebuilding the throne of God in man's own graven image? After all, it wasn't Eve's invitation that initiated Adam's naked fall from grace. It was the fear of unleashing his own untapped powers when he tasted of the fruit plucked from the tree of knowledge. This is Adam, reporting from the center of the earth. Welcome back here on Out the Rabbit Hole. Robert Larson, KUCI in Irvine. Hope you enjoyed today's show. The reporters, with their own words, included in order, writer and film student Ryan Altcalt, Andy Colvin, 
artist and author of the book, The Mothman's Photographer, The Work of an Artist Touched by the Prophecies of the Infamous Mothman. Greg Bishop, host of Radio Misterioso and author of Project Beta, the story of Paul Benowitz, national security, and the creation of a modern UFO myth. And also, Weird California, your guide to California's local legends and best-kept secrets. Poet and student, Amanda Kraft. And our last contributor was Adam Gorightly, author of The Shadow Over Santa Susana, Black Magic Mind Control and the Manson Family Mythos, and The Prankster and the Conspiracy, the story of Kerry Thornley and how he met Oswald and inspired the counterculture. Okay, so we have a, we got a few minutes left here. I am going to go to a little more music, and uh, then we'll uh, kind of close out the show and give you a little more info about things. Okay, that pretty much does it here for Out the Rabbit Hole. That's the music there of Camper Van Beethoven. Uh, yes, if you have any questions about what we did today, uh, and to get more information about uh, any of the contributors, the reporters from Strange Realms, you can email me at rglarson at org. Also, I have information about all the music we played today. And, yeah, a little something different we do every so often here on Out the Rabbit Hole and mix it up and have some uh, readings of strange material. And once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And, okay, we've got Matt Kaplan just about ready to go here with Counterspin and Planetary Radio. Stay tuned because you will enjoy that. Robert Larson saying I'll be talking to you next week. KUCI in Irvine.